Mark chapter 6. And it's Psalm 68, verse 5, by the way, that says that God is a father to the fatherless. Psalm 68, verse 5, for your meditation. But open up now as we begin to study the Word to Mark chapter 6 as we continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We pick it up today in verse 7. Let's read verses 7 through 13 of Mark 6. It says, And Jesus summoned the twelve, and he began to send them out in pairs, and he was giving them authority over unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake off the dust from the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And the disciples went out and they preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. God, this morning we ask that your word would be for us a reality. That we would come to it in faith knowing that you are able to accomplish every single word in there, that not one jot nor tittle shall pass away, that you are absolutely faithful to everything that you have said. There's nothing in your word that you have done already that you're not able to do again. And we see here that you sent men out and that people were set free and people were healed. And people repented. And the world was impacted. And we would just ask now that through the teaching of your word, you would inspire, equip, and empower us for the same move of your spirit here on this coastline. Lord, we just believe that our coastline and indeed our nation is ripe for a harvest. And you are the Lord of the harvest. And we pray now you would stir in our hearts that you would send laborers into the harvest field. And you'd reap for yourself a mighty harvest that men and women everywhere would repent and confess that you are Lord and Savior. Use us for this work. You've got no other chosen tool in this generation but us. Use us. Encourage us now. Speak to us. Refine us. Teach us. Rebuke us. Instruct us. Equip us to be your servants now through the teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this message this morning is... Knowing the purpose, the plan, and the people. Knowing the purpose, the plan, and the people. That is, knowing the purpose for your life, the plan for evangelism, and the people you are to evangelize. We ought to have a knowledge, a working knowledge of these three things. The purpose of your life, the plan for evangelism, and we ought to have a knowledge of the people that God has called us to evangelize. And we see here in verse 7, before we talk about those points, that Jesus summons the twelve just as he had in chapter 3, but now he summons to start them in that purpose for which he originally called them. You'll remember way back in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, that Jesus went up on the mountain and there he prayed all night. And then he summoned unto himself those who he wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed the twelve, that they might be with him, 
and that he would send them out to preach and that they would have authority to cast out demons. It's been some time now since he chose them and now he starts them in verse 7 on that purpose. That purpose is of going out and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, of evangelizing those who don't know. So he begins to give their existence a new purpose in chapter 6 verse 7. We realize from Mark chapter 3 that he also called the disciples to be with him. Don't miss that that is one of the distinct and wonderful purposes of our lives, both in this life now and in eternity to come, that we are to be with Christ Jesus. Christian, don't save that time for just heaven. Experience communion with your Lord in the here and now and let it merely increase a millionfold when we get to heaven. So there is the purpose of them being sent out to preach. There was the purpose for which they were called that they were to be with Jesus, communing intimately with him. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that these same men were called to shepherd the body of Jesus Christ, that they were called to shepherd his sheep. And that was another purpose given to them. Jesus said in John 21 to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know I do. And he said, then feed my sheep then tend the lambs, then care for my people. And so following those things and looking at the whole of Scripture, we might be able to discern this, that the church, you, me, we, us, the church exists primarily for three reasons. These three reasons, you ought to write them down. Number one, the church exists for evangelization. In Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus gave to us the Great Commission. He said, All authority has been given unto me, both in heaven and in earth. You go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. So the church has been given the Great Commission, and that is one of the reasons we exist, is for evangelization. Secondly, the church exists for edification, to build each other up, to encourage one another, both in the local body and in the body worldwide. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 through 25 says, let, let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. In other words, let us not ditch church, it says there, but let us encourage one another and all the more as the day approaches, the day of the Lord's coming. And so the clear command of scripture is that we are to get together as Christians and edify one another, encourage one another, build each other up. In fact, one of the distinct functions of the church is given to us in Ephesians 4, verse 12, where the Holy Spirit says that he is appointed unto the church prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers and apostles for the building up of the saints, for the equipping of the saints that they might do the work of the ministry. So the church exists to evangelize the world, to edify or build up the saints and the church exists for exaltation. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The church exists to worship God both now and in eternity. I don't know if you know this, but we won't be doing any evangelizing in heaven. Now is the time to evangelize. I don't know if you understand, but I won't need you to encourage me when I'm around the throne of God. I won't need you to come and say, oh, Brit, just be faithful. Just trust in the Lord. I'm going to see him as he is. I won't need it. But for eternity, the church will still be exalting the name of Jesus Christ. We will join with the angels and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty forever and ever and ever. Amen. 
But now is the time not only to exalt the Lord, but to edify and to evangelize. These are not only the purposes of the church, but they are the purposes of our individual lives, Christians. And so we as a church, as Reality Carpentry, we ought to take stock. We ought to look at these three things and we ought to say, how are we doing on evangelism? Because we're called to that by God. What are we doing to reach the lost in our community and in the nations? We ought to ask ourselves with regards to edification. How are we doing in the equipping of the saints? Are we instructing them in the things of God? Preparing them for the work of God? Encouraging them in the faithfulness of God? And how are we doing it? Worshiping God and making His name known? Exaltation. And as we ask that corporately, you ought to ask that individually. You ought to now, with this outline, begin to take a a little stock of your life if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, just enjoy this for a few minutes. If you are a Christian, you need to take inventory. And you need to say, okay, what am I doing about evangelism? Me, as an individual, your name, put it in there. What am I doing about evangelism? What am I doing about the lost actively? Secondly, what am I doing to encourage the saints that God has put around me? My fellow Christians. And thirdly, what am I doing about worship because God is worthy of it? And so you need to take stock this morning and say, this is the purpose of my life, evangelization, edification, and exaltation. How am I doing in this purpose? Am I fulfilling it or am I failing in it? It's never too late to start, amen? But this morning, we narrow the purpose of our lives and we speak about evangelizing. Evangelizing as the purpose of your life. The disciples were called to evangelize at that time. That was their purpose. They were to fulfill it. They were to go to the nations at that time. But you are called to preach the gospel at this time. They were called at that time. You were called at this time. You and you alone are called at this moment in history to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you realize, I'm not sure if you understand what an amazing honor, what an amazing privilege, what a wonderful purpose that is to have for our lives. That we would be called to represent the living God and to share His good news. Isn't it the greatest news in the world? That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him would never perish but would have everlasting life. Is there better news than that? There's not better news than that. That's the greatest news in all the world. And we have been entrusted with it. What an honor it is to be called God's fellow workmen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says that we are God's fellow workmen. That's wonderful. God did not have to include you and I in His work. In fact, I'm, God, I'm sure that God could be more proficient doing it in and of himself. More effective. I'm sure he would accomplish it more speedily and without such a mess that you and I make. But because he loves us and we are his children, he incorporates us in his work. That's a tremendous honor. I can remember the day that my dad taught me to teach surfboards. It was for me a tremendous offer that he would incorporate me, begin to use me, begin to instruct me in what was so near and dear to his heart. There is nothing more near and dear to the heart of God than people getting saved. That he would include you in that and I in that is a tremendous honor. 1 Corinthians 4 verses 1 through 2 says, Let a man regard us in this manner. This is how people ought to see us. 
as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. We have been entrusted, church, with the mysteries of God. We are to be stewards of His grace in its various forms, 1 Peter 4.10 says. What about 1 Timothy 1.12? There's an air of amazement in the voice of Paul as he wrote to Timothy and said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because He considered me faithful, putting me into service. You remember Paul, before he was Paul, his name was Saul and he was a Christian killer. And yet God considered him faithful and put him into service. If you're a Christian today, God has considered you faithful. He's called you to His kingdom work. That's a wonderful, glorious, tremendous privilege. What about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 18-20? through 20? Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to Him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. You should take note of that. God gave that to you. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, or it is this, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So God has given to you and to us, church, the ministry of reconciliation and the word of reconciliation. goes on to say, Therefore, We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are the ambassadors of Christ Jesus. An elected official such as the president, one of the privileges that he has is he gets to handpick his representatives to other nations, doesn't he? He gets to handpick his ambassadors. He gets to say, I want this person to represent me and my administration, and my will, and my plans, and my personhood, and my attitude. God has handpicked you if you're saved. And has said, I want this person to represent me, and my will, and my administration, and my purposes, and my reconciliation, and my grace, and my attitude. Be imitators of God, therefore, we're told in Ephesians 5. Because we are the ambassadors of Christ. Nobody else, but we are his representatives. That is utterly frightening and gloriously wonderful at the same time. Not only are we his ambassadors or his representatives, but we are his empowered representatives, aren't we? Wouldn't it do any good to send a representative overseas, to send a delegate, and send him with no power? Why is he there? Wouldn't it do any good for God to save us and say, now be salt and light in this world without any power? Wouldn't it do any good? And so he told the disciples to tarry in Jerusalem until they received power from on high. That the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, would come upon them and they would receive power to be his witnesses, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and the outermost parts of the earth. You and I have been empowered by that same Holy Spirit. Amen? Beyond that, we have been entrusted with authority. We have been commissioned. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All authority has been given unto me, both in heaven and on earth. That word authority in the Greek is exousia. It combines the idea of right and might. Jesus was saying, All the right in heaven and in earth belongs to me. 
All the might in heaven and on earth belongs to me, Jesus was saying. All authority has been given to me, both in heaven and on earth. Jesus said, I am the man. There is no other besides me. My will be done. I have all the right, all the might, all authority has been given unto me, he said. And then the next words out of his lips, as you looked at the disciples, were, you go therefore and make disciples of the nations. What did he do there? He commissioned them. He commissioned them. It's called the Great Commission. Not the Great Suggestion. The Great Commission. Why did he announce, first of all, that he had all the authority? Why did he announce that before sending them? Because he wanted them to know that they were being sent in that authority. How do we define the word commission? You might want to write this down. Commission means to be given authority to act on behalf of another. To be given authority to act on behalf of another. Right? You do everything on behalf of me. And it is also a second definition of to be commissioned is to have an entrusting of power. And so when God said, when Jesus said, I have all the right and I have all the might, and then he said, you go, he entrusted to you and I, his disciples, all the right and all the might. He has invested that in us, both positionally as his delegates, his ambassadors, his representatives, and practically as his Holy Spirit who is in us. And so we are his empowered, commissioned, entrusted representatives. If you begin to realize that, and if you start to live in that truth, life becomes infinitely exciting. Because it's no longer about you, man. That's when life gets so good. I see faces in here this morning just down. Listen, some of you, you got good reason to be down. Others of you, you're just down because you're all caught up in you. How can I say that? Because I know, because I'm just like you. When I get down, why is it? Because of me and me and me. And I want mine and what about me? And nobody appreciates me. Hey, that's fine. You want to sing that song? That's fine. But let me tell you how much more wonderful it is because I've sang both songs to begin to sing forget about me and let's see some people get saved. Forget about my problems. Forget about my trials. Forget about me and this and that, what I want and all this. Forget about all that. And let me go after some others for the sake of the kingdom of God and for their salvation and for their eternity. That's when life gets good is when we get over ourselves and into others. And when it's no longer my will be done, but God, what is your will? Well, I'll tell you my will. I've empowered you to be my representative. That's glorious. Listen, friends, I don't know if you understand, but we are the only beings, the only creatures who are currently entrusted with this ministry. It hasn't been given to the government. It has not been given to angels. Only you and I have been given the ministry, the calling to be salt and light. If we don't evangelize the world, nobody will. In the tribulation, when the church is gone, after the rapture, there is a different thing that takes place. God calls an angel to fly about in the mid-heavens and preach the gospel to all men and women, to all flesh, that they ought to repent. You can find that in Revelation 14, 6 through 7. But the church is gone, and so he raises up an angel. And then he's got the two witnesses in Jerusalem, and then he's got the 144. But in this time, there is no angel flying around mid-heaven saying, repent. It is you walking around our coastline, calling men and women to repentance and to grace. We are entrusted with that. 
This is our purpose, to proclaim the gospel and reclaim the lives and know that nobody is beyond the reach of God and the reach of the gospel. Amen? To proclaim the gospel and reclaim the lives. The next thing I want you to know is don't be intimidated because God's commandments are his enablements. I don't want you to feel belittled this morning. I don't want you to feel burdened. I don't want you to feel overwhelmed or afraid with regards to evangelizing. I want you to know that God's commandments are his enablements, that he will never ask you to do anything that he does not empower you to do. When he says do it, he gives you all that you need to do it. Yes, it's going to be scary because he needs to grow us. Yes, it's going to be beyond us because he wants us to rely on him. Yes, there's going to be some ambiguity because we've got to walk by faith, but there will never be a lack of strength. There may be ambiguity, there may be uncertainty, it may be difficult and hard and beyond us, but in the final analysis, he has equipped us with everything that we need. He's given us the spiritual gifts, he has commissioned us and trusted us with authority, he has even given us authority over the demonic realm, as it says in our text, verse 7. Now, if every individual Christian in this world would realize this wonderful purpose for their life, this meaning, this calling, if every Christian would realize it and begin to walk in it, listen to me now, the world would be evangelized in 33 days. 33 days of every Christian were to respond to this purpose. Billy Graham, Billy Graham, God bless him. This summer he's doing his last crusade ever in Los Angeles. What a wonderful event. You ought to take an unsaved friend. Billy Graham is having his last crusade ever in Los Angeles this summer. If God were to extend the life of Billy Graham and the ministry of Billy Graham to such an extent that he could hold one of his large-scale crusades every single day. And if on every day that he held one of those crusades, 5,000 people got saved, how long would it take for the world to be one to Christ? I've done the math. 3,562 years. If Billy Graham had one of his crusades every day, and every day 5,000 people were saved, it would only take 3,562 years for the current population to be evangelized. You see, I don't know if you know math, but that doesn't work. (laughs) But you, you, if you were to go and lead just two people to Jesus, that's it in your whole life. That's all you ever did with evangelization. You, You just led... Just two people to Jesus. Two people to Jesus. And when you led those two to Jesus, they each went out and they each led two to Jesus. And those ones that were saved went out and they led two to Jesus. And those ones who were all saved, they each went out and they led two to Jesus. You see, it's called exponential growth. And if you figure it out mathematically, the current world population of over 6 billion would be evangelized in 33 days. In 33 days, if you would lead two people to Jesus Christ, disciple them that they might lead two more, and so on and so forth, 33 days, over 6 billion people would hear the gospel. It is doable if we would take individual responsibility for our kingdom calling. Don't entrust it to the hands of others. What about our community? 
Our community is about 15,000 people. There's almost 600 people in this room. If every one of us were to go out and lead two people to the Lord, all of our community in three and a half days would be saved. Three and a half days, dude. That means by Wednesday afternoon, Carpentry is a Christian community. If all the Christians in the world, there's only about one billion of them, if they all just went out and led one person to the Lord, it would just take six and a half days for the whole world to know. You see how doable it is? If we take individual responsibility, it's doable. But statistics tell us that the vast majority of the church, over 90%, will never tell anyone about Jesus. Can we reverse that in our church? Can we reverse that in our church? I hope so. This is exciting to me because it's doable, because it's a privilege, and because it is a profound purpose for our lives. Whenever you see someone on a talk show who for some reason got their 15 minutes of fame, they say, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, I just want to be remembered as one who impacted the world around me, who helped others. No way to better impact the world and help others than to preach the gospel. There's no greater way. Point number two, after knowing the purpose for our lives, is knowing the plan for evangelism. The plan for evangelism. We see that Jesus sent them out and he gave them authority. Not only his authority to preach the gospel, but he gave them authority over the demonic realm. He also gave them instruction and he gave them direction. Let's read it in verse 8. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belt but to wear sandals. And he added, don't put on two tunics. That's your little underclothing stuff. And he said, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off your feet. So Jesus gave them authority. He gave them instruction. And he gave them direction. The first instruction that he gave them was that they were to travel light. Very simply. Don't take too much stuff. All you need is a staff. Don't take any food. Don't take a beggar's bag. Literally in the Greek, it's a beggar's bag. Don't go out and beg for money when you preach the gospel. Don't take any money in your own belt. And don't take two sets of underwear. (laughs) That's kind of what a tunic is. (laughs) Don't take two sets of underwear. In other words, travel light. Jesus was telling them to travel light. Why? Listen. Everything that we see Jesus do with the disciples between the time that he called them until the time that he was crucified was their training. He's training the 12 here. He could have easily have gone out himself and preached the gospel, and now he sends them out. He's training the 12 because in just a short time, they will be the church. He's training the 12, and he wants them to know on this, their first missionary trip, that they are not to be encumbered and concerned with material things. He wants them to be unencumbered, unconcerned, and unfettered with material things. It doesn't mean don't possess things. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean don't have a savings account. It doesn't mean don't have multiple pairs of shoes. It just means let God be God and not mammon be your God. Be concerned with the kingdom of God and the things of God and not the things of your kingdom. That's all that that means. He just wanted to teach them that they need to begin to walk by faith and trust in him. And also, I think he wanted to teach them that there ought to be a sense of urgency in what they did. Don't take a bunch of junk. Just go out and do it. If there was a sense of urgency for them, ought there not to be a sense of urgency for us who are living in the last of the last days? Infinitely more so. 
He wanted them to live by faith. Having a minimum of provision required a maximum of faith. Having a minimum of provision required a maximum of faith. They were learning to trust God to provide as they responded in obedience. Listen now, that's a key point. I'm dealing with this in my life right now. They wanted the disciples to learn to trust for God's provision as they were simply being obedient. You see, what the disciples didn't say, and good for them, is they didn't say, well, wait a minute, Jesus. What if I dirty my tunic? I'm going to need another tunic. Well, what am I going to carry my stuff around if I take no bag? What about this and that and the other? How am I going to eat tomorrow if we don't take any food? How are we going to buy food if we don't take any money? I feel like you just need to plan better than this, God. This just seems ridiculous. (laughs) He wanted them simply to respond in obedience through faith and not second-guess him because the circumstances were difficult. Can anybody relate? He wanted them to simply say, God, all the dots are not connected for me. I don't understand how you're going to make all the ends meet. I don't see clearly all the provision. I'm not absolutely positive on how it's all going to come together, but nevertheless, thy will be done. And because you said so, I'll do it. That's all he's teaching them. That's all he wants us to know in this text. But it's very profound. Abraham was a man who responded to faith. God said in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 4, Abraham, get up and go. Leave all your wealth, all your riches, all your family, all that you know, and get up and go. God to where? Don't worry about that. I'll tell you when you get there. Just get up and go. And Abraham went. Jesus did say to wear shoes. Now, this is interesting. He had to tell the disciples to wear shoes. Why did he have to tell them to wear shoes? I have no idea whatsoever. But he told them, wear shoes. Maybe guys didn't always wear shoes then. Maybe it was a practical concern that said to them, listen, you're going to be working. When you evangelize, it's work. You're going to be working. Put some shoes on your feet. Put your work boots on. You're going to get dirty. You're going to get involved. You need to wear your shoes. You don't need a second tunic, but you need some shoes. You're going to get involved. Put your shoes on. I see there another picture. What does Ephesians chapter 6 tell us? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. I don't think that's what Jesus was speaking of. I think he wanted them to wear shoes because they were going to work. But I see a picture here for us. That as we go out, as we respond to God, we need to make sure that we have the armor of God upon us. And an integral part of that armor is that our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, that we are ready to share the good news. We're instant in and out of season. Ready to drop the gospel bomb whenever the situation would dictate. I see a second picture in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 where he says to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. We already mentioned that you got to be ready whenever the time comes, but he said to Timothy, don't only be ready, but be patient. Be in it for the long haul. Put on your shoes because the labor is not brief. Put your hand to the plow and don't look back, Jesus said. Anybody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of my kingdom, he said. Put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Put your shoes on. Be ready for the battle. Be ready for the long haul. Be sober. Be alert. Go. That's what I think we need to know. And then he said to them, start with your own people. 
He said, go out in verse 10, wherever you enter a house. Now in the parallel account of Matthew chapter 10, he says in verse 6, and go to the lost sheep of Israel. He says to them expressly, avoid the Gentiles and the Gentile nations and just go to Israel. The gospel goes first to the nation of Israel. Jesus is, by the way, the Jewish Messiah. The Gentiles have been grafted in. The gospel is first for the Jew and then the Gentile. But the lesson for us is that we ought to go first to the people who are around us. Don't go to Costa Rica if you're not telling your classmates about Jesus Christ. Don't buy a plane ticket if you can't pull it off here at your home front. Start with the people around you. Whoever God has around you, that's who he wants you to tell about Jesus. Be persistent and be a servant. I believe we can glean that instruction when he said, when you go into a house, just stay there till the work is done and then leave. In other words, don't go around looking for the most comfortable house and the most comfortable situation. Be persistent and be a servant. Wherever you go, put your hand to the plow and finish that work to the end. And then I believe he teaches us in verse 11 when he's talking about shaking off the dust from your feet. The Jews did that throughout the Old Testament period whenever they were in a Gentile nation or a Gentile region and they were walking back into Israel, they would shake the dust off of their feet so as not to defile Israel with the dust of the pagans. Jesus said that they were to do the same from any region where they had been rejected or where the message had not been listened to. We see that Paul and Barnabas did that in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts 15. They did the same thing. They weren't preaching gospel. They rejected. They went and they shook off their feet in judgment against those people. I think for you and I, we could shake our feet all we want. But I think what is more important is that we're able to exit a situation with a clean conscience. Conscience. That we're able to exit a situation with a clean conscience. We're able to dust our hands and say, I did my job. I preached the gospel and the whole gospel. I loved them, I served them, and I let them know. And if they don't respond, that's between them and the Holy Spirit. I'm going to just go ahead and dust my hands. I'm clean before God. I've done my duty. I think we should know that with regard to evangelizing, that we need to be able to walk away and say, I have done my duty. Listen, the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome, it says in 1 John. What is burdensome is disobeying the Lord. Can't you understand? Whenever we're obedient, we share the Lord and we love somebody and we serve him by somebody, we walk away feeling so light and refreshed and good. Why? Because we're walking in God's will. Whenever God is calling us to share or serve or love and we don't do it, we walk away so burned. Why? Because we're denying our kingdom role. And that's not who you were meant to be. And it just doesn't work. Verse 12 is very interesting. It says, And they went out, and preached that men should repent. There's the heart of it. What do we do? How do we evangelize? We tell people they need to repent. Is that politically correct? It ain't even close. It's not even close to politically correct. That's got, no way. But that is what we're called to do. To tell men and women everywhere that they ought to repent. Now we at Reality Carpenteria here know that repentance is the sweetest word in the world. Peter told the nation of Israel in Acts chapter 3, verse 19. He said to Israel, Repent therefore and turn to God that your sins may be wiped away and times of refreshments might come from being in the presence of your God. We know that repentance is sweet because it removes a barrier, brings us back into communion with God. We love repentance, don't we? 
It's the most wonderful thing, but the world doesn't love it. But we're called to tell it. We're called to call people to it, to say, hey, man, that is wrong. This is right. You need to repent. You need to turn from that and turn to God. If our message consists of anything less than repentance, if we stop it merely believing, we're just sending people to hell with a smile on their face. And we do that, don't we? We bring up Jesus and people will say, oh, yeah, Jesus, man, I believe in Jesus. And we go, oh, okay, cool, don't have to talk anymore. Which Jesus do they believe in? Do they believe in the Jesus that Islam teaches? In the Jesus that uh, uh, Hindu teaches? In the New Age Jesus? In the secularized Jesus? Which Jesus? Because the only one that will save them is the Jesus of the Bible. So it doesn't mean a hill of beans when they say, I believe in Jesus. We need to begin to define terms. Well, which Jesus and on what terms do you believe? Because the terms of the Bible are believe and receive by repenting of your sins. You see, we can't stop it, believe. We can't take that as, okay, done deal. We need to call men and women to repentance. I have this quote. There is not a single person in heaven who did not repent, and there's not a single person in hell who does not believe. So just saying, I believe, and God doesn't cut it. It requires repentance. There's not a single person in heaven who does not repent, and there's not a single person in hell who does not believe. So we've got to deliver the whole message. The whole message. Now here's the whole message. I've given this to you before, but we call it the four R's, right? Very simple, the four R's. If you don't have it memorized from last time, you ought to write it down and memorize it. You can share the gospel with anyone at any time in about 30 seconds. Here we go, ready? Hey man, you need to recognize that you're a sinner. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. I've sinned and you sinned. We're all sinners. You need to recognize that. But don't be too sad because realize that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sins. The Bible says that God gave Christ Jesus to die for us even when we are enemies of God. So recognize you're a sinner, but realize Jesus paid the price upon the cross. But now, man, you got to repent because the Bible says that when we repent, our sins are wiped away and times of refreshing come from being in the presence of God. And now that you're willing to repent, you've just got to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior because John 1.12 says, to as many as have received him, to them has been given the right to be called the children of God. So are you ready to pray, you tell them. You see how I just preached the gospel in less than 30 seconds? The whole thing didn't leave anything out. It was effective because the gospel is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and to the Greek, the Bible says. It was absolutely effective because it's the whole message. But don't leave any of it out. Don't leave it out. The four R's. And so that is the plan for evangelism. But one part of the plan that we cannot forget is prayer. Without prayer, all plans are frustrated. Without prayer, all plans are frustrated. Without prayer, all plans are frustrated. Before you talk to a man about God, talk to God about the man. Amen? So we talked about the purpose of our life. We talked about the plan for evangelism. We need to mention now the people a little bit. We need to know the people. Verse 14. Read with me as we're going to learn something about people, about you and I. Verse 14, 
And King Herod heard of all that was going on because Jesus' name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist is risen from the dead and that's why these miraculous powers are at work in Jesus. But others were saying, no, 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 he's Elijah. And others were saying, no, he is a prophet like the prophets of old. But Herod, the tetrarch of that area, heard it and he kept saying, nope, nope, John whom's head I cut off, he's come back to life. Verse 17, for Herod himself had sent, here's the story now, the historical story. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married his brother's wife. Verse 18, for John the Baptist had been telling Herod, saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against John the Baptist and wanted to put him to death, but could not do so because Herod was afraid of John the Baptist, knowing that he was a holy and a righteous man, and so he kept him safe. And when Herod listened to John the Baptist, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him nonetheless. And then in verse 21, the historical account says, And a strategic day came. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for the lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias, this is his wife and also his brother's wife, what a mess. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I'm going to give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up of half of my kingdom, up to half of my kingdom. Verse 24, and so she went out and she said to her mother, which is his wife and his brother's wife, what shall I ask for? And she, this wicked woman, Herodias, said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in haste before the king and she said, I want you to give me right away the head of John the Baptist on a platter. That's what I want for payment for my dancing, the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths, And because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. And immediately the king set an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when the disciples heard about this, they came and took away the body and laid it in the tomb. Here we see the end of the greatest man ever born to a woman, Jesus said, John the Baptist. He was imprisoned because he was preaching righteousness and repentance. He was killed because those to whom he was preaching didn't like the message, very much like Jesus Christ, very much like the thousands upon thousands of martyrs for the hundreds of years past. We mentioned a moment ago that for our plan of evangelism not to be frustrated, we must pray. But in order to pray effectively, we've got to know people. If you know people, you know how to pray. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you know people, you know how to pray. If you know people, you know how to pray. So what can we glean about people from Herod? Well, number one, people have and want to hold on to the wrong view about Jesus. People have and will always want to cling to the wrong view about Jesus. Herod said, oh man, John the Baptist, I cut off his head and now he's come to life and that's why all this stuff is happening at the hands of this Jesus guy. Another said, no, no, it's Elijah. Another said, no, he's a prophet of old. They were all wrong. They were all wrong. And today people say many things about Jesus. 
Well, he was just one of many prophets or one of many saviors or one of many teachers or just a great moral man. You can't make any of those claims if you read the Bible. He never said any of those things. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The Father and I are one. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. He was very clear. And yet people have all these different ideas about Jesus. And so because they have the wrong idea, you've got to have the right idea. You've got to know the real thing, Christian. If your purpose in this life is to serve God, you've got to know the real thing. You've got to know Jesus. You've got to know doctrine. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to know the real thing to combat the wrong thing. You've got to know the truth to dispel the lie. Amen? That is your responsibility. You've got to commit yourself to somewhat of a study of apologetics, which means to defend the faith. We are all called to be able to defend the basic tenets of the faith. None of us can cheese out on this. It is your responsibility to begin to get educated in the truths of the Bible and begin to be able to defend them against the lies. 1 Peter 3.15 Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. We've got to be ready to give an answer, to make a defense. Jude 1.3 Beloved, while I was making every effort to write about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly. What does it mean, contend? What does it mean? What does it mean to contend? Fight. Thank you, Mr. Hipple. It means to fight. What does it mean to do so earnestly? Do we need a dictionary. Yeah. To do it with some zeal. To put some effort into it. To commit yourself to it. So we are to fight zealously for the faith. This is the job of the church. This is the responsibility of every individual Christian. It does not mean that we are militant. It doesn't mean we kill people and blow them up. It means that we simply let the truth loose and it demolishes the lies. It's been said that the Word of God is a lie and all you need to do is let it out the cage. But you can't let out what you don't have in. You've got to know the Word of God. You've got to know doctrine. You've got to be able to share it. You've got to be able to dispel the lies. And lastly... You've got to be able to model Jesus Christ. You can't model that which you don't know. Because there are so many false ideas about Jesus, we are called to model the truth of Jesus. That he's an amazing God of love. Secondly, what we learn about people is people don't always like or want the truth and or what is right. People don't always want to hear the truth. They don't always want to hear what is right. Go to John chapter 3, if you would. John chapter 3, a horrible passage. Extremely tragic. Heartbreaking in what it says. John chapter 3, we're going to concentrate on verses 19 and 20, but we'll read from verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave... His only begotten Son, so that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. 
He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now look at this tragedy in verse 19. And this is the judgment, that the light is come into the world, and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Did you see that tragedy? The light came into the world. Jesus Christ, the light, the Savior, the lover came into the world. But men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That is you and that is I until we came to our senses by the grace of God and received the Savior. But that is those to whom we are sent. Many of them love the darkness rather than the light. It's tragic and it's heartbreaking in its scope and in its ramifications. That is why, church, we must pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. The God of this world, Satan, lowercase g, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. That is why we've got to let the truth loose. That is why we've got to preach it. That is why we've got to pray, because that is the only way that people are set free. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 tells us more about people and what we're up against in the last days. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. How do we deal with that? You let the truth loose. And you pray for soft hearts. That's all that you're called to do. Let the truth loose and intercede for soft hearts. That's all that you're called to do. The rest is the job of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Hooray? Hurrah? You don't save nobody. He saves them. But your little part is just let the truth loose and pray for the hearts. Let the truth loose and pray for the hearts. The reason why I've got to pray so hard is that people are resistant to change. We see that Herod, he liked to have John the Baptist come and talk to him, but he never made a change. It said explicitly in verse 20 of Mark 6, he would listen to Herod, he he would listen to John the Baptist, he enjoyed it, but he never made a change. People are resistant to change because they are resistant. Christians, we're called to be persistent. Because they're resistant, we're called to be persistent. How many of you have finally changed after being a mess for so long? God was persistent with you. God was persistent with you. We need to be persistent and merciful and graceful and patient with those that God has called us to. Next, we learn that people are easily influenced by evil. Herod, just he kind of liked John the Baptist. He was kind of pushed into this corner of uh, putting him in prison because of his chick, Heroditus or Herodias, whatever her name was. And then when this girl comes in and dances, he makes her a promise 
She says, I want the head of John the Baptist. And it says that he was extremely grieved. The only other time in the New Testament that is used is to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was extremely distressed. But he did it anyway. You see, people are easily influenced by evil. Listen to me. People are easily influenced by evil. Anybody got a TV? We are easily influenced by evil. And if you and I are, how much more the unrepentant? How much more the non-believer? Herod, because of his lust and because of his pride, had the greatest man ever born to women beheaded. What a horrible thing. We are easily, easily influenced by evil. It's the same for us. It's the same for non-believers. Because they're so easily influenced by evil, don't you think we need to make righteousness and truth and goodness and grace and mercy ever so prevalent, ever so loud, ever so bold, ever so clear, ever so persistent? Shouldn't we make it known? I think so. Amen. All these things that we learn about people, by the way, they're true of us also. Just let me read to you in 1 Corinthians. I'll just read it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? It says in verse 9, Don't be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says in verse 11, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. You see, human nature is human nature. We were the same. The only thing that separates us from the lost world is that we've been forgiven. That we've been washed. That we've been justified. That we've been sanctified. And that we are glorified. That's it. The only thing that brought about that distinction was that we repented and received. Amen? So don't become arrogant in evangelizing. Be very humble in that we are wretched sinners, just like anybody else. But we have the greatest secret in all the world that God forgives. That God forgives. Paul said in Romans chapter 11, verse 9, I would wish myself accursed for the sake of my kinsmen for my fellow Jews. I would give up my salvation to see more Jews come to Christ, he said. Moses said in Exodus 32, 32, God, if you're going to judge the Israelites right now, then blot me out of your book of life. I'd give up my salvation on their behalf. And Jesus, it says in Galatians 3, 13, became a curse for us and died in our place. We need, church, the heart of Moses that we give ourselves up for the people around us. The heart of Paul, that we give ourselves up for our kinsmen. And the heart of Jesus Christ, that we lay our lives down, that others might live. Amen? Lord, we thank you this morning that you can give this heart to us.